morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. I'm Shelley Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team. I'm so glad to be here with each of you today, and um, thank you for being here. I know as the weather gets prettier, it's oftentimes a tug to think, maybe I should just go to the Botanic Garden this morning, but uh, we're glad you chose to be here with us. I want to shout out a welcome to the West Campus also who's joining us today. We're glad you're with us also. You know, one of the um, rites of passage from childhood to adulthood that I totally remember is when my dad, who was a, a single parent, stopped telling me when I had to go to bed at night. I think it was uh, late high school, and it made me feel really grown up. And I, actually, I think what happened is he finally just gave up because I've always been kind of a night owl and would manage no matter when I was supposed to be in bed, I managed to stay up after that. I think he just began to give up and go to bed before me. He thought, um, I've given up trying to outlast her. I'm just going to give up. So I would stay up late finishing my homework in high school. And the last thing I would do before going to bed was roll my hair. Who remembers rolling your hair every night and sleeping on those rollers? And what I would do as I rolled my hair was watch the monologue to the Tonight Show. Now, this was probably in the early Johnny Carson days. Now, I have to confess that I'm still a night owl, although in my old age, not nearly as much as I used to be. But I still watched that monologue to the Tonight Show. Praise God, I don't have to roll my hair anymore. Praise God for uh, curling irons. I don't have to roll my hair anymore. So most nights, I'm just up, finishing up, loading the dishwasher, getting ready for the next day and the monologue to the tonight show comes on and what that means is that for 45 years i've seen every host to the tonight show and i can tell you that one of the things they all do it doesn't matter um whether it was way back when or now they all have a comedy routine called how bad is it and what they do is they take some sort of terrible thing that's going on in our world and they have a straight man with that says how bad is it and then they say well the president's ratings are so bad that, you know, or the economy is so bad that, and then they do this entire routine of funny things off of this, how bad is it? Fortunately for us this morning, our psalmist takes a different tact. He doesn't want to tell us how bad it is. What he's done is written a whole praise psalm that proclaims the greatness of our God. And as we read the psalm together today, we get to be the straight man this morning, and we get to say how great is our God over and over again, verse by verse, and then listen to what the psalmist tells us about the greatness of our God. You know, all these Tonight Show hosts, their goal is simply to make us laugh about some of the terrible things that are going on in the world, and we need that, don't we? We need to be able to laugh every now and then. The goal of the psalmist is to really help us grasp the greatness of our God. Because when we finally understand how great a God that we worship, it will transform our lives. It will transform our lives. So I hope you have your Bibles already open to Psalm 147. If you don't, do that now. And while you're doing that, I want to share with you that this is another psalm that we don't really know who the author of this psalm is. But what we do know is that it was probably written after the nation of Israel returned from their exile in Babylon. In fact, it's probable that it was written for the great celebration 
that the people participated in when they returned from exile with Nehemiah after the wall was built around Jerusalem. We studied it last year if you were here. Look at Nehemiah 12 on your verse sheet. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, and with cymbals, and harps, and lyres. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. So as we read Psalm 147 together this morning, I want you to picture it as being read. It was probably written for this celebration we're reading about here. And so picture this psalm being read on top of that wall as it, they're surrounded by the exiles who have finally returned to their homeland and are celebrating together. And so I want to start by reading verses 1 and 7 and 12. So look at those with me. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Now drop your eyes down to verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. And verse 12 says... Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Our psalmist here has written three great rounds of praise in this psalm, and each of them begins by inviting us and God's people to praise him. In verse 1, he not only calls God's people to praise, he tells them exactly what he's inviting them to do. You know, Misty shared with us last week another great psalm, uh, Psalm 135, and she shared with us that the word praise in 135 and in this psalm is an action verb. And what that means is it's an action that we're being called to. An activity. And according to the psalmist here, it's an action or activity that is pleasant and good and fitting. The word that's used for fitting at the end of verse 1 literally means beautiful. So our psalmist starts out this great psalm by calling us to a beautiful song of praise. A song that should bring joy in our life. A song that's not a chore for us because Praising God is not only appropriate, it's a joy that we should all delight in. Psalm 33 that we looked at a few weeks ago with Deb reminds us of that. Look at Psalm 33 on your verse sheet. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Now in verse 7, he starts his second round of praise in this psalm. And in that verse, he emphasizes thanksgiving and music as the vehicle to praise God, to respond to God's gracious goodness in our lives. You know, I've often marveled at music and how gracious God is to give us music as a way to communicate great truths and deep emotions. Great truths and deep emotions in a way that touches our souls. You know, music is God's idea. It's not our idea, although we have great musicians. It's not our idea. He's the giver of music as the vehicle of praise. And I don't know about you, but I often feel like when I sit down to, to have my own time of worship and praise before God, 
I just feel like I can't find words to really express what my heart feels oftentimes. And then a song will pop into my mind that does exactly, expresses exactly what I feel. I think our psalmist probably feels the same way about music here as I do because he encourages us to use music as our vehicle of praise to God. You know, our words of praise can express our thoughts before God, but music allows us to really share with him those inexpressible feelings. So we see in verse 1 that our psalmist invites us to be a praising people and tells us why we should praise because it's an activity that's good and fitting and pleasant in our life. In verse 7, he gives us a vehicle for praise, which is thanksgiving coupled with music. But in verse 12, he moves to who should praise? Who should praise? As he directly calls out the people who've been the most blessed by their God. He calls out to Jerusalem, to Zion, uh, to the people of Israel who probably standing at the base of that wall, <clears throat> reunited together for the first time in their homeland. <clears throat> he calls the people who are most blessed to be the people that stand in the front row of the concert of praise. You know, and it's a calling in our life too to share how great our God is with the world, to be the people that stand in the front row of a concert of praise. We don't want to keep God's greatness to ourselves. We want to share it with a world that needs to know how great our God is. So our psalmist weaves this message uh, for us in the midst of his declaration of God's greatness. And his message is, is that praise is a good and great response for God's people who are receiving his favor and blessings. How else is the world going to know if we don't share the greatness of God through our praise with them? I love this quote from British preacher Charles Spurgeon. It says, Singing the divine praise is the best possible use of speech. It speaks of God, for God, and to God. And it does this in a joyful and reverent manner. Singing in the heart is good. But singing with the heart and voice is better for it allows others to join with us. And that's what we want. We want the world to be able to join with us in praising our great God. I think Spurgeon and the psalmist agree with each other that praise is the best possible use of our voices. We use our voices for so much in this world. The best thing we could use it for is to praise our God. How many of you participated in Young Life as a teenager? I did. I uh, began going to Young Life in the late 1960s at um, Arlington Heights High School as an unsaved teenager. I didn't realize I was unsaved, but I totally was. I was a pagan in every way. But one of the interesting things about going to Young Life as an unsaved uh, person is that I still loved the praise songs. I still love them. I remember to this day being excited when they would start the music. I, I wasn't always really sure about the message, but I would be excited when they started the music. I loved to sing those praise songs. I loved to hear those praise songs. And I would take them home with me afterwards and sing them during the week to myself. They gave me a joy and a peace that I still remember 50 years later. Looking back, I realize a fascinating thing, that even my unsaved soul 
recognize the rightness of praising God. And even to my completely lost and pagan heart, it did feel just like the psalmist said it does here. It felt good and right and fitting even then. How great is our God? He is so great that we must praise Him. Look at Luke 19 on your verse sheet. And this is Jesus, about Jesus. And as he rode along, the spread, they spread their cloaks on the road. And he was drawing near. Already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Our God is so great that even his creation cannot keep silent. They must praise him as his people must. Okay, so let's keep reading. Let's read verses 2 through 6. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our God and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Now beginning here in verses 2 and 3, the psalmist begins to declare and describe the greatness of God as he shares how God has poured out his grace and his great compassion in the lives of these exiles that have been returned home from slavery to their homeland of Jerusalem. I hope you remember the story of, of Israel's exile. We've studied it the last few years as we looked at Isaiah and Daniel and Nehemiah together. Israel's prophets had warned them over and over and over again that if they continued in idol worship that um, eventually it would bring disaster on them because God would punish them. And that's exactly what happened. In 722 B.C., Assyria came in and carried off the northern kingdom to slavery. And the southern kingdom, Judah, did not stop their idol worship. And in 586, uh, the Babylonians came in and carried them all off to Babylon. God made good on his promise to punish them if they did not turn from their idols because our God is a God of justice but his mercy is greater than his justice, his scriptures tell us, um, because he also pours out his grace and his compassion even on those who have been the object of his justice. Israel's prophets, not only did they predict that God would punish them if they didn't turn from idol worship, Israel's prophets also predicted that um, they would be restored to their homeland because of God's grace and mercy. Look at Jeremiah 29 on your verse sheet. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. 
So knowing those prophecies, think how meaningful it is for the exiles as they stand on that wall in Jerusalem and hear these words of the psalmist in verses 2 and 3. Their God is so great that he has redeemed them from the slavery that their own hard hearts sold them into. He's so great that he has rebuilt their holy city, he tells them here. He's healed their broken hearts and he's carefully bound up every wound that was inflicted upon them while they were in slavery. You know, our God is also so great that he has poured out that same grace and compassion in our lives also, hasn't he? We see tangible evidence of that grace and mercy in our lives as we approach Easter here in a few weeks because the greatness of God is magnified by the cross of Christ, isn't it? The greatness of God that we see here as he's brought Israel back from, from exile is the greatness of God that we see in the cross of Christ. The death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is the greatest act of grace and compassion in the history of mankind. And it should speak to all of us about how he has also gathered us from exile. He's also healed our broken hearts and wrapped our wounds tenderly. Look at John 3.16 on your verse sheet. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Romans 5.8 says, for, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The nation of Israel was saved from their exile to a foreign land and restored by God's grace and compassion to their homes. And as believers, we are saved from eternal separation from our God, not by our own righteousness, by simply from the greatness of God's grace and compassion. How great is our God? He is so great that he transforms our lives and returns our futures to us, just like he did the nation of Israel. Now, last week when Misty talked about Psalm 135, she talked about the significance of names. And here in verse 4, we see God not only establishing all of the stars in the heavens, but we see that he gives names to each and every one of those stars. And, you know, the giving of a name is always significant because it designates authority. The one that gives a name is the one that has the authority over whatever it is that they are naming. You know, a new trend in having babies is to have your sonogram, to find out the sex of the baby, to have a reveal party and tell everyone that's there the sex of the baby. But you keep the name secret until the baby is actually born. That's really the trend that I see among our young moms today. And I can understand that after Misty shared with us last week some of those celebrity names. Remember Fifi Trixabel that she shared with us? I would keep that one quiet too. I wouldn't share that one. Um, Who gets the final say in a baby's name? The one that will have authority and responsibility for that baby. The one that created that baby and will be responsible for them. Naming expresses one sovereignty and one authority. And our God is so great that as he names the stars in the sky, it lets us know that he is the sovereign power over the entire universe. The entire universe. But we also see in this psalm, in spite of his uh, abundant power and complete sovereignty, 
Our God is not an isolated monarch far away who lacks understanding, who names the stars but possibly doesn't understand the small things in creation. Our psalmist tells us that our God understands everything. He understands all there is to know about not only his universe but his people. And we see that complete understanding displayed here in verse 5 as he stoops to pick up those who are humble. The word humble here means lowly, meek, um, depressed, poor. You know, it's interesting to realize when we think about the lowly and the meek and the depressed and the poor, the proud never need assistance exalting themselves, do they? they? The proud do not need God to reach down and scoop them up because the proud have already placed themselves up here, haven't they? The proud spend all day long exalting themselves. So God does not have to do that. But our God is so great that he understands the needs of the humble and he personally stoops down to pick them up. You know, we also see more evidence of his greatness and his complete understanding and his sovereign power in verse 6 because the psalmist assures us that the wicked will not go unpunished. You know, a frustration of almost every culture and people group in the history of the world, certainly a frustration for those of you who have a heightened sense of justice, is that it often appears that the wicked flourish um, and they never receive the punishment that we feel like they should. All of us can praise God this morning because the psalmist shares with us that the wicked will not escape perfect judgment from our perfect God. Our God is so great that every being, every being in his creation will receive at the end of the day what they truly deserve. What they truly deserve. The humble will be lifted up by his hand. The wicked are going to be punished by his hand. Look at Psalm 146 on your verse sheet. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Second Peter 2 9 on your verse sheet says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of, de- of judgment. How great is our God? Our God is so great that we see not only his sovereign power, but we see his perfect understanding in the heavenly bodies and in our human lives as well. His power, his knowledge, his understanding is complete and perfect. It lacks for nothing. Let's keep reading. Let's, let's read verses 8 through 11 together. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor the pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. You know, in verse 4, we saw him... Um, having dominion over the vastness of the universe. In verses 8 and 9, we see him sustaining all creation, 
even down to the smallest, most insignificant things in our world. We see him bringing rain. We see him growing grass to feed the animals. We even see our great God feeding the least of these creatures, which are the baby ravens that cry out in their hunger. I read that ravens are the most selfish of all birds, that other birds not only feed themselves, but they take food to their young, and that ravens are prone to simply feed themselves and not carry food back to their young but our God is so great he cares for all living things he even cares for the young of these selfish ravens look at Luke 12 on your verse sheet consider the ravens they neither sow nor reap they have neither storehouse nor barn and yet God feeds them all of how much more value are you than the birds This is our Lord Jesus talking in Luke. And the insight that we can gain from both the psalmist and our Lord Jesus is that if our God is so great that he sustains even the least of his creation, we can rest in the comfort that he will sustain us in all of our needs, whether they're big or small. You know, sometimes it seems so much easier uh, to us to rest in uh, trusting God for the big things in our life, the really traumatic things. Uh, But the greatness of our God means that he does it all. He does it all, not just the big and traumatic things in our lives, but he does even those little bitty tiny things, those little bitty tiny things that we sometimes forget to trust him with or even ask him about He cares for the big and the small with equally great and tender care. A great God has no limits, no limits. There's nothing outside the bounds of his care for us. And we can trust knowing that he cares about every single thing in our life, just like he cares for feeding those baby ravens. Now, verses 10 and 11 in this psalm were two of my very favorite verses in this psalm because it gives us a peek not only at what impresses our God, but what brings him delight to. You know, he doesn't take any notice of the physical strength and power that the psalmist points out here in both the horse and the man um, because he's the source of that strength. He's the source of that strength. So it doesn't impress our God. It would be like um, a painting expecting the uh, painter to be um, impressed when he's the one that's actually put the paint on the canvas to start with. Physical greatness is nothing to the one who has actually knit those bones and muscles together. But what does win the regard of our great God is our hearts. Our hearts. Having our heart in the right place. Having our heart understand exactly who he is. That's what gives him pleasure and delight. It gives him pleasure when we simply place our trust in him. When writing about this psalm, theologian Warren Wiersbe said, It is an awesome thought that we can bring pleasure to the heart of our Heavenly Father. That is an awesome thought, isn't it? And you know, I think we all spend a whole lot of time doing things that we think will win God's favor and pleasure when all we really need to do is look and see where our heart is because when our hearts place our simple trust in Him, That's what brings him pleasure. That's what brings him pleasure. Look at Psalm 149.4 
on your verse sheet. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. How great is our God? He is so great that it is our simple trust that delights him. Okay, let's finish up together. Let's look at verses 13 through 20. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. In verses 13 and 14, our psalmist lays out God's provision of protection and peace and prosperity for the people that he loves. You know, in the opening verses of our psalm, he talks about rebuilding Jerusalem and gathering those that have been exiled um, and bringing them back home. And here what he talks about is his continued care. He hasn't simply brought them back home and dumped them off and left them. We see that he continues to strengthen their physical boundaries. He blesses their children He drives out their oppressors. He even makes sure that their crops are the finest in all the land. Notice that what he uses here is the present tense. The present tense in these verses, which tells us that God isn't done with Israel. He's not bringing them back and walking away. He is remaining with them. Their great God remains present, continuing to protect, continuing to prosper, continuing to bless. How great is our God? Our God is so great that he remains with us day in and day out, blessing us, protecting us, prospering us, just like he's done through the nation of Israel here. He doesn't enter into our lives once and then leave us. He remains with us. Now, the ending of this psalm, beginning in verse 15, the psalmist shows us how God's greatness is really manifested in his world. And it's manifested through his all-powerful word, through his all-powerful word. It's through his word that he commands nature. We see here that he commands the snow and the hail and the wind and the frost. Our God is so great that just a simple word from him dominates our natural world dominates all of creation and our environment. The things that seem so powerful to us are just a word from his lips. How many of you remember that uh, Mayfest hailstorm from 20 years ago? Do you remember? Some of the hailstones were bigger than softballs. And if you were out in that hailstorm 20 years ago, you're thinking, this is the scariest thing I've ever been a part of. Our God commands that force of nature 
with one simple word. One simple word. We see that in the New Testament, our Lord Jesus does the exact same thing, commands nature with just a simple word. Remember the story of Jesus and the disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee and a sudden and really powerful storm comes up and our Lord Jesus is at sleep in the front of the boat. He's not even um, bothered by it, but the disciples are totally convinced they're all going to die and so they wake him up They beg him for their lives. And this is what um, he says. Look at Matthew 8 on your verse sheet. He said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. How great is our God? He is so great that a simple word from him commands the winds and the waves and calms every single storm in nature. His word commands the entire earth. Our psalmist culminates his tribute to God's greatness here in verses 18 and 19. And what he does is he points out that God has chosen Israel for an honor that he has blessed no other nation with. There's no other nation that has been given the blessing of the revelation of the word of God. And that's what the psalmist shares with the people here. Their God has not only healed them and brought them home, he's not only stayed with them and continued to be present in their lives, he's given them a unique blessing that no other nation in the world has. That blessing of revealing his will to them through his commandments and his statutes And it's evidence of the fact that not only does God want to protect and prosper them, he wants a relationship with them. He wants them to understand who he is and to become more like him as they live his statutes and his commands out in their life. Israel is special to God and he has proved that to them by giving them his word. Look at what Moses says to them in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 4 on your verse sheet. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? How great is our God? Our God is so great that his all-powerful word not only commands nature, as we've seen, it also reveals his very nature to his people. Because of his word, Israel has God's laws, and the nations around them have no laws. Because of his word, Israel sits in the light, and the nations around them sit in the dark. Because of his word, Israel has a relationship with the God of all the universe, the one true living God, while the nations around them only have idols that they've carved with their own hands. As we sit here this morning, we hold that very same word in our laps and in our hands, and we can marvel at the greatness of God who's reached out to every one of us 
and given us his word. What a gift he's given us. What a gift this is. Look at what the psalmist says about this gift in Psalm 119. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. The psalmist realizes what a gift it is that he has been given. The word of God to meditate on and to walk in. The psalmist realizes that we have, uh, when we have God's word, we have his truth. We have his um, heart. Uh, we have everything that we possibly need to know about our God right here. How great is our God? He's so great that he has written everything we need to know about him and given it to us as a love letter. As a love letter. He's placed it in our hands. Now there's no higher note of praise that the psalmist can end on here um, than by pointing out that God has chosen Israel above all nations He's chosen Israel above all nations to reveal himself to them, to give his truth to him by his word. So he simply closes his tribute with the simple words of praise the Lord. One final invitation to praise after showing them how great their God is. You know, we have no higher note of praise in our life either than the recognition that God has chosen us also to be his people as his beloved through the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to end this morning in praise also in just a few minutes. But I want to close with um, encouraging you to really take hold of one of the great lessons of this psalm, and that is that grasping the greatness of God really does transform our lives. It really does transform our lives. Psalm 147 not only proclaims God's greatness over and over, it points us to the truth that grasping the greatness of God has the ability to give us peace with our past, to give us peace with our past, just like the exiles that were healed and restored to their rightful home by their great God. They now had peace with their past because of God's great compassion and grace in their mercy, they were able to make peace in their with their past. And we can have peace with our past too. When we understand the greatness of God, when we depend on the grace and compassion that only our God has to heal us and to restore us and to redeem us. Grasping the greatness of God also allows us to rest in our present circumstances, doesn't it? Um, even if it means rebuilding things, even if it means that maybe our present circumstances aren't the greatest. You know, when Israel came back to Jerusalem, the city was destroyed. They didn't come back to things uh, just like they'd left them. They came back to a rebuilding process. But in this psalm, our God assures us that he's present with us even when we have to rebuild our lives. So we can trust the greatness of God and stand on it in our present lives as well. And finally, grasping the greatness of God gives us hope. It gives us hope regardless of what our past is or what our present is because we understand that just like he chose the nation of Israel, he has chosen us also as his people. And because we recognize that, we can trust in the unfailing love of the one who holds our future. So I'm going to close in prayer while Jennifer and her team come. And we are going to finish with a, psalm of, a song of praise. Pray with me.
Father, you are great and gracious. We love you. Um, grasping the greatness of who you are really will change and transform our lives. We thank you for that truth that the psalmist shares with us this morning. Father, I pray for each of us as we leave today that um, our lives would be filled with praise for you because you are a great God. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you stand for us? Worship with us, please. Yeah.